0: Chapter 9. A Rich Life The Finances of Relationships, Weddings, Buying a Car, Your First House, and More I'll never forget the conversation I had with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Cass. It was right before Thanksgiving, and we decided it was time to have a very big adult conversation. We were going to talk about kids, marriage, money, the kind of things you really need to get serious about. Well, I told you before that I love systems. So you think I just showed up to this meeting and just talked? Wrong. I had a detailed agenda ready, which I put into Google Calendar and came prepared. Here are six of the items from that agenda. When should we get married? What type of wedding do we want to have? How many kids do we want to have? What are the names of those kids? Where do we want to live? And what about our lifestyle? the first thing we had to talk about was getting engaged. We'd been dating for years, and Cass was ready to get married. In fact, she said, I'd really like to be engaged by Q1 of next year. And this was the moment I realized I'd found the love of my life when I heard her speaking about our relationship in financial quarters. Towards the end of that conversation, I took a deep breath, and I said something I'd been thinking about for a long time there's one other thing I wanna talk about. It's important to me that we sign a prenup. More on that in a minute. In this book, I've written about money, which I believe is a small but important part of a rich life. What about the rest? What about challenging conversations about love and money, like the one I had with Cass, or the decision to buy a house, or negotiating your salary? Once you've automated your finances, what's next? Living a rich life happens outside the spreadsheet. It's tempting to tinker with online calculators and asset allocation for years and years, but at a certain point, especially for my readers who have followed my lessons and automated their money, there's a point where you just got it right. You won the game. Now it just takes time, patience, and feeding the system. The next layer of a rich life isn't about recalculating your returns from compound interest. It's about designing the lifestyle you want. Kids? Taking a two-month vacation every year? Flying your parents out to meet you? Increasing your savings rate so you can retire in your 40s? When I wrote these words, I was sitting in a safari lodge in Kenya, which was part of a six-week honeymoon that Cass and I took together. One of our dreams was to invite our parents for the first part of the trip in Italy, to treat them like royalty, and to create new memories together. I have to tell you, it was truly an unforgettable rich life experience. For me, a rich life is about freedom. It's about not having to think about money all the time and being able to travel and work on things that interest me. It's about being able to use money whenever I want, to do whatever I want, not having to worry about taking a taxi or what I want to order at a restaurant or how I'll be able to afford a house. Now that's just me. Being rich probably means something different to you. So now, in this chapter, it's time to focus on designing your rich life. Student loans. Pay them down or invest? The Federal Reserve reports that the average college graduate has around $35,000 of student loans. And those of you carrying such debt might find it a big impediment to achieving your rich life. But the surprisingly good news is that the student loans were probably an excellent financial decision. Statistics clearly show that college graduates far out earn those with only a high school diploma. Now that said, you got to take responsibility for researching college majors and their average salaries. Please, please, please do not listen to the pundits who have jumped on the bandwagon of saying student loans are evil and you should skip college. God, if I hear this nonsense one more time, I'm going to jump up and beat someone with an onion. That way it's not clear why they're crying. Now, we already talked about getting out of student debt in Chapter 1, but there's one additional question I get asked a lot. Should I invest or should I pay off my student loans? Deanna Beaton, who's 30 years old, wrote, I used to have anxiety wondering how I would ever be able to pay off my student loans, have savings, and have a retirement plan. Now my student loans are almost entirely paid off. I have savings accounts, plural, I have two retirement accounts, and I have no stress around these things. I have all of it automated, and I know how much money comes in, where it goes, and how much goes out. Investing versus paying off student loans. It can be difficult to hear the drumbeat of invest early when you're scrambling to pay $500 or $1,000 towards your student loans each month. But when it comes to paying down your loans or investing, you really have three choices. First, pay the minimum monthly payment on your student loans and invest the rest. Second, pay as much as possible towards your student loans and then, once they're paid off, start investing. Or number three, do a hybrid 50-50 approach where you pay half towards your student loans, always paying at least a minimum, and send the other half into your investment accounts. Now, technically, your decision comes down to interest rates. If your student loan has a super low interest rate of, say, 2%, you would want to pursue option one, pay your student loans off as slowly as possible because you can make an average of 8% by investing in low-cost funds. However, notice what I just said. I said technically. That's because money management isn't always rational. Some people just aren't comfortable with debt they want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. If having debt keeps you awake at night, then follow option two and pay it off as soon as possible. But just understand that you could be losing lots of growth potential just so you can be more comfortable. I recommend you take a close look at option three, and here's why. The interest rates on most student loans these days is similar to what you'd get in the stock market, so frankly your decision will be a toss-up. All things being equal, The money you stand to make by investing is about the same amount you'll pay out in interest on your student loans, so mathematically, it's basically a wash. It won't really matter whether you pay off your student loans or invest because you'll get roughly the same return, except for two things, compound interest and tax-advantaged retirement accounts. When you invest in your early years, you get huge benefits from compound interest. If you wait until you're older to invest, you'll never be able to catch up on those earnings. Plus, if you're investing in tax-advantaged accounts, like 401ks and Roth IRAs, you're getting gains from tax benefits. That's why I would consider a hybrid approach, paying off your debt with part of your money and investing the rest. The exact split depends on your risk tolerance. You could choose a 50-50 split to keep things simple, but if you're more aggressive, you'll probably want to invest more love and money after you know the basics of personal finance it's easy to live in the spreadsheet what's harder is knowing how to navigate money with the people around you your friends your parents and your partner there are infinite situations where love and money plays out eating out with friends who never tip realizing your parents are in debt or combining money with your partner I believe mastering love and money is one of the most complex and rewarding parts of a rich life. That's why I want to spend some time talking about how to handle money with the people around you. Sure, there are some easy formulas you can use for situations like splitting rent when one partner earns more than the other. But that's just the spending. I believe the real challenges and the real opportunities lie in the softer discussions. For example, should you tell your friends how much you earn? What about your parents? What's the role of money in getting married? And should you get a prenup? I don't have all the answers, but I'll tell you exactly what I've chosen to do and why. Ignore the noise of money advice. Now that you've mastered the basics of personal finance, you're going to notice how noisy the world of money is. There's your uncle's hot stock tips, there's random money management apps. And there's your friend over there in the corner scoffing that you haven't used a certain obscure tax avoidance strategy. Anyone else find it hilarious when you get judged financially by someone who can't save enough money to buy a bag of jelly beans? Everyone's got advice. Everyone has a different way to handle their money. Some know more than others, but I'll tell you what, everyone's got an opinion on what you should do. Suddenly, you're going to be hyper aware of how other people handle their money. You'll also notice that as soon as they hear you've taken control of your money, they'll begin to act weirdly, making excuses for why they can't do it or putting your efforts down. They'll say things like, oh, it's impossible to get ahead. Retire? (laughs) Ha ha, I'm going to have to work forever. Must be nice to have savings like you. Now, I've had over 15 years to think of comebacks, and now I get to record my own audiobook. So I'm about to break down Ramit's fantasy situation. Here we go. I'm sitting here quietly minding my own business, somebody who absolutely sucks at personal finance and is deeply in debt starts telling me how I need to drop everything I'm doing and invest in real estate, bitcoin and assorted other idiotic suggestions. My comeback. I look up from my Thai papaya salad, I lower my fork, I use a beautiful cloth napkin to wipe my lips, I examine them slowly from head to toe, and I just say, why would I take advice from you. The music stops, everyone in the restaurant claps, the chef comes out to shake my hand and gives me a free dessert. This is my fantasy. After years of hearing these comments I've learned what's really going on. When you first start taking control of your money people will notice. Candidly, you're probably talking about it more than before. You know the old saying, how do you know if someone's vegan? Don't worry they'll tell you. Same thing with taking control of your finances. So my suggestion to you is be mindful of how you discuss money and who you discuss it with. By mastering your money, you're disrupting the normal relationship pattern you've had with others, which makes them uncomfortable and causes them to react in odd ways. Don't take it personally, smile and say thank you. As the people around you get more comfortable with the new you, those comments will gradually fade away. But at that point, you'll be hearing other noise, like the chaos of advice on the internet. As my readers get more comfortable implementing the IWT system, invariably they start to seek out more information on investing and personal finance. Maybe you end up on Reddit or some investing forum. Suddenly, you're going to get hit with tons of advanced tactics that anonymous commenters will urge you to use. Tax loss harvesting, (laughs) it's the most important thing, I can't believe you're not doing it. Oh my God, you don't have captive insurance? (laughs) Ha, LOL, I can't believe you still believe in index investing. That's cute. It's so obvious Apple is going to the moon. Or is it Tesla? Or Bitcoins? Or ICOs? If anything, I've learned to have compassion. Remember that just a few weeks ago, you didn't know much about money. It may have taken you a long time to get mentally ready to even buy a finance book and go through it. And now you understand concepts like automation and IRAs that just a few weeks ago would have seemed totally foreign. The best thing you can do is to be a great example to others and if they want your advice, share this book with them. Ignore the noise. Remember, investing shouldn't be dramatic or even fun. It should be methodical, calm, and about as fun as watching grass grow. What you can do with your investments like creating your rich life, that's the fun part. Log into your investment account no more than once a month. That's it. If you set up your asset allocation and you're consistently funding it, just stick to your guns. You're investing for the long term. And when you look back, day-to-day changes will seem like minor blips, which they are. I understand that you'll want to seek out more information. Go ahead, do it. Just keep it in perspective and realize that everyone has an angle But there are no tricks or hacks to long-term personal finance. After you read the hundredth breathless post about how index investing is only for beginners, by the way, it's not, you'll realize that you know more than most of the advice out there. That is the magic moment. Instead of living in the spreadsheet and tweaking random numbers and seeking out endless Reddit threads about personal finance, you can spend less than 90 minutes a month on your finances and instead live your rich life outside the spreadsheet Doing things that matter. How to help parents who are in debt. This is one of the most difficult situations you might face in your financial life. Realizing that your aging parents are in financial trouble. As likely as not, they won't come out and admit it. And in my experience with thousands of readers, your parents will never ask for help. It's just too embarrassing. They might drop little clues here or there, saying things like, money is tight right now. Discussing their situation may be among the most challenging conversations you will ever have and one of the most necessary. Your parents have spent decades raising you and they've formed patterns that are very difficult to change. You are more likely to bring up money than they are. And guess what? You have the perfect excuse. This book. Just use this line. Mom, I've been listening to this book on personal finance. I learned a lot of things I never knew. How did you learn about money? Boom. Watch the floodgates open. If your parents are in debt, it can be very tough on your relationship with them. Your biggest challenge is not going to be coming up with a technical personal finance solution for their problem. Instead, it's going to be asking lots of questions, listening carefully, and deciding if they actually want help and if they're ready to receive it. If they do, great! You can help them. But if they don't, one of the most difficult things you'll ever do is respect their decision, even as their situation might become increasingly dire. In my experience, if you approach the topic of money with your loved ones in a careful, compassionate way, they'll open up to you. Every situation is different, but here are some questions you can ask. And before you do, just remember this. Tread lightly. Nobody likes talking about money, especially if it means having to admit to their kids that they need help. Ask them. Where did you learn about money? What did your parents teach you? If you could wave a magic wand and be in any kind of financial situation, what would it be? And when you ask this question, let them dream. If they say win the lottery, encourage them. Cool. What would that mean? What would you do? And then bring it down to earth. Get a little bit more realistic. Okay, let's assume you can't win the lottery. What would your ideal situation look like five years from now? Most parents have pragmatic dreams. How much do you make each month? How much do you spend? What percentage of your income are you saving? Almost nobody knows the answer to this question, so expect that. Be reassuring, not judgmental. Do you pay fees for your bank accounts or your credit cards? What's your average monthly credit card balance? Out of curiosity, why isn't it zero? How might you get it there? I find, by the way, that using the phrase, out of curiosity, is a beautiful way to soften otherwise difficult questions. Do you have any investments? How did you choose those? Do you own a mutual fund? How much do you think you're paying in fees? What about your 401k? Have you contributed to that? What about the company match? Do you have any other investment accounts, such as a Roth IRA? Have you ever heard of a site called IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com? No? What's wrong with you? I highly recommend you scream this extremely loudly at them. Make sure the neighbor's here too. Your parents might not have the answers to all these questions, but listen closely to what they tell you. I'd encourage you to take the 85% solution approach here and figure out one or two major actions that they can take to improve their financial situation. Maybe it means setting up an automatic savings account Maybe it means focusing on paying off one credit card so they can feel a small sense of accomplishment. Just remember, think back to when you didn't know anything about money and it was incredibly overwhelming. Now you can use what you've learned to help your parents make small changes that will have big results for them. Should you tell your parents and friends how much money you have? Years ago, I started to feel that I should talk to my parents about money. My business had grown, I'd become more financially secure than I'd ever imagined, and when my parents asked how business was going, I'd answer in generalities, things are good, when in reality, I knew that sharing a single revenue number would be more specific than anything I could say. I called my friend Chris for advice, and I asked him, should I tell my parents? Chris is an author who was raised in a household similar to mine. He instantly understood what I was really asking. He said to me, Why do you want to tell them? And I told him it would answer a lot of questions that I felt were beneath the surface. Am I doing fine financially speaking? Did my parents do the right thing by moving to this country? Are they proud of me? But I was nervous because I thought sharing specific details about my success might change my relationship with my parents. I told him it might get weird. I was using a loaded word there that anyone with ethnic parents will understand. Chris, more than almost anyone else, knew what it was like to grow up as an Asian kid with frugal parents, then earn more than you ever imagined. Ultimately, I realized I wanted my parents to know I was doing fine, that they'd prepared me for life, that I'd learned their lessons, and that they didn't need to worry. Chris pointed out that I'd been thinking a single number would communicate all this, but in reality, I could assure my parents in lots of different ways. I could simply tell them my business was doing well, I could thank them for teaching me the discipline to grow a business, and I could do the thing that's most meaningful to parents, which is to spend time with them. Chris was right. He taught me that my intention was good, but I didn't have to get into the exact dollar figures to communicate that I was secure. In reality, my parents don't care about the number in my bank account. They just want to know that I'm happy, and of course that I'm married and having kids. I told you, my parents are Indian. The next time I spoke to my parents and they asked how things were going, I took extra time to thank them for everything they taught me and I told them that thanks to them, I was fortunate enough to have a dream business that lets me live an incredible life. There are so many lessons that I took away from this. As you become more financially successful, your relationships with others might change. Be aware of it. For example, I am hyper-conscious about different people's ability to spend on a dinner or vacation. If I'm meeting a group of friends for dinner, I will always pick a restaurant that we can all easily afford. My worst nightmare in life is choosing a place that makes someone in that group dinner feel financially pressured. You might be tempted to share specific numbers. If it's with your spouse or a very close friend or family member, okay, but beyond those people, Ask yourself why. Is it to communicate that you're doing well, or is it to subtly show off? Are there other ways of communicating what you want to share? Remember, sharing numbers without context is a bad move. Your intention might be good, but to someone who earns $60,000, telling them you're on track to have a million-dollar portfolio or more does not communicate safety and security. It communicates arrogance. Talking about money with your significant other. I have another fantasy, which is to host a TV show where couples have their first conversations about money together. No, I'm not going to mediate it. I'll just be sitting in the background stirring the pot with crazy money questions, like this one. What's a money secret you haven't told your partner yet? There I am, sitting in the back, eating chips and salsa, grinning as I watch the nervous hands, the sweaty foreheads, and the stammering words. Damn, I live for this shit. HBO, give me a call. Sure, you and your boyfriend or girlfriend might have had an occasional chat about money. But when you're getting serious, maybe you just moved in together or you just got married and you're merging your finances together. It's important to spend some time talking about money and your financial goals. Talking about money with your partner might sound awkward, but I promise you it doesn't have to be painful. By the way, what's more awkward is people not having conversations for 35 years of their life and then complaining about it. As corny as it sounds, talking about money in the right way can actually bring you closer together if you know what to ask and you stay calm. Now I'll start by saying the specific tactics aren't as important as your attitude going in. The key here is to be non-judgmental and to ask lots of questions. In fact, I'm going to give you some sample questions right now. I've been thinking about my personal finances a lot and I'd love to get on the same page with you. Can we talk about it? How do you think about money? Like some people like to spend more on rent and other people like to save a certain percentage. I think I overspend on eating out. What are your general thoughts about money? Notice that in that question, I started off really broad, then I offered examples, then I offered a confession about an area that I'm not great in. Start by being vulnerable about your own finances. Here's another question. If you could wave a magic wand, what would you be doing with your money? Like for me, I know that I should be investing in my 401k, but to tell you the truth, I haven't even filled out the paperwork yet. Notice again, another admission, only if it's true, of course. Here's another question you can use. How should we use our money together? Have you thought about whether you'd like to change anything? This question is where you can discuss how you can share expenses, if you're saving towards joint goals, and what fun things you want to use your money for. Notice that at this point, we're not getting into the tactics, we're not talking about different investment options, and we're certainly not making each other feel bad about things we should have done. The goal of this conversation is so simple. It's just to agree that money is important to both of us and that we want to work together to help each other with our finances. That's it. End on a high note. The big meeting. This is the day when you both lay bare all your finances and work through them together. But remember, it's not really actually a dramatic step since you've been slowly working towards this for weeks. It should take you about four or five hours to prepare for this meeting. You'll each want to bring the following. A list of your accounts and the amount in each. A list of debts and what the interest rates are. Monthly expenses. Your total income. Any money that's owed to you and your short-term and long-term financial goals. My wife and I did this with our finances. We started with the big picture, how much we earned and how much we'd saved, and over the course of many months, we went deeper into our accounts and our attitudes toward money. It probably won't take you that long to explore your accounts, but to fully understand each other's money attitudes can take years. We're still working on it. When you sit down, put the paper aside. Start by talking about your goals. From a financial perspective, what do you want? What kind of lifestyle do you expect? What about vacations in the next year? Does either of you need to support your parents? Then take a look at your monthly spending. Now this is going to be a sensitive conversation because nobody wants to be judged. But remember, keep an open mind. In fact, show your expenses first. Ask, what do you think I could be doing better? And then it's your partner's turn. Spend some time talking about your attitudes towards money. How do you treat money? Do you spend more than you make? Why? How did your parents talk about money? And how did they manage it? One of my friends, for example, has horrible money management skills, which is so confusing to me because she's disciplined and smart. After years of knowing her, one day she finally opened up and told me that her dad had declared bankruptcy twice. That finally helped me understand the way she approaches her finances. The most important goal of this conversation is to normalize talking about money, which is why we want to keep it as light as possible. The second goal is for both of you to get a baseline of money management, making sure you're each saving and investing and paying off debt if applicable. Essentially, you want to work through this book with your partner. You can get to all the complicated stuff like joining your accounts together later. Now, in the spirit of keeping this upbeat, I want you to set up a few short and long-term savings goals, such as a year-end trip. At this point, it's probably better not to run through all the numbers for a really large purchase because it can start to get overwhelming. Just establish a savings goal or two and set up an automatic monthly transfer for each of you. Longer term, you and your partner should work together to get on the same page with your money attitudes. When you set a goal, for example, we're going to save enough to put a $30,000 down payment on a house you'll both be able to commit working together toward it. When one person earns more than the other. Once you and your significant other start sharing expenses, questions are gonna come up about how to handle money on a daily basis, especially if one of you has a higher income than the other. When it comes to splitting bills, there are a few options. The first and the most intuitive option is to split everything 50-50. But let me ask you a question. Is that really fair to the person who earns less? They're spending disproportionately more, which can lead to resentment and often bad money situations. As an alternative, try this idea from Susie Orman. She encourages dividing expenses based proportionately on income. For example, if your monthly rent is $3,000 and you earn more than your partner, here's how you might split it up. If you earn $5,000 a month and your partner earns $4,000 a month, then you would contribute 56% of the rent, or $1,680 per month, and your partner would contribute 44% of the rent, or $1,320. There are lots of options. You can each contribute a proportional amount into a joint household account and pay bills out of that. Or one person can cover certain expenses like groceries, while the other handles rent. The key here is to discuss it, come to an agreement that feels fair, Remember, 50-50 is not the only definition of fair, and then check in every 6 to 12 months to make sure your agreement is still working for you. Just as a personal example, my wife and I contribute proportionally to a joint account, and we also have separate individual accounts where we can spend money on whatever we want. What to do if your partner spends money irresponsibly? This is the most common complaint I hear from married readers. Ramit, my husband spends way too much money on video games. How are we supposed to save money? And when I tell him this, he tunes me out. And the next day, he's buying something else. Now, I have to tell you that I received an amazing Instagram DM from a woman who told me that her husband spends way too much on, wait for it, iced tea. As soon as I saw this DM, I dropped everything I was doing. I rubbed my hands together. I said, let's do this. I said, how much does he spend on iced tea? And she said, well, it's at least $1.50 each time. I said, how many times a month does he buy it? She said, at least 20. And then I said, out of curiosity, what's your household income? Suddenly, she didn't respond to me. She went 20 minutes without an answer. And then she said, I'm not comfortable telling you that number. I said, look, give me a range. Guess what she said. Their household income was over $600,000. So what's going on here? Obviously, there's a mismatch in communication, but there's also a mismatch in where they are focusing their time. If your household income is $600,000, or in some case, $60,000, you simply should not even bother talking about certain expenses because they're so far down the value chain. The solution when you believe a partner spends money irresponsibly is to elevate the conversation beyond you and your partner. If you keep trying to tell your partner not to spend money on something, he or she will resent it and ignore you. People absolutely hate to be judged for their spending. So if you continue making it personal, saying things like, you can't spend that much every month on video games or shoes or iced tea, you'll get nowhere. Instead, keep it simple. Let me give you an analogy from the food world. Instead of telling them how much dessert they eat and lecturing them, try a different approach of agreeing on filling your plates with mostly vegetables and protein first. For example, go back to Chapter 4 and listen to how much it costs to save for common purchases like vacations, Christmas gifts, or a new car. Then have a conversation about what your savings goals are and how much you need to save to reach them and come to a savings plan that you both agree on. If you do this, the next time you have an argument about spending, you can steer it away from you and your partner and instead refocus on the plan. It's hard to get defensive when you're pointing to a piece of paper, that's a plan you both created, instead of pointing at the other person. It's not about you deciding to splurge on a fancy dinner or them paying extra for direct flights. It's about your plan. Note that you and your partner will almost certainly have different approaches to reaching your savings and investing goals. For example, you might want to prioritize spending on organic food, while your partner might prioritize travel. As long as you both reach the goal, be flexible on how you get there. By focusing on the plan, not the person, you're more likely to be able to sidestep the perception of being judgmental and work on bringing spending in line with your goals. This is the way that handling money together is supposed to work. The $35,000 question, why we're all hypocrites about our weddings and how to save for yours. After the first edition of this book was released, I went on book tour all across the country. I met readers in cities like New York, San Francisco, and Salt Lake City. I'll never forget a young woman I met at my Portland meetup. She came up after my talk and she said, I just want to thank you for your advice on weddings. She told me she'd set up a sub-savings account for her wedding, and she was automatically saving for it every month. Now, I got excited. I love seeing real people who've applied my material. So I asked her if I could take a quick video where she would share her story. Suddenly, she got visibly uncomfortable. I could tell she wasn't into it, but I couldn't figure out why. So I asked her. And that's when she looked down, and said, because I'm not even engaged yet. Think about that. She thought it was weird to save for her wedding because she wasn't engaged yet, that she would get judged by people. You know what I thought? I loved it. Here she is taking control of her finances instead of waiting for the world to tell her it's okay. You know what I think is weird? Not saving for predictable expenses that we know will be coming. It's too far off. It's too big to think about. So what do we do? We avoid planning for the very items that will make a massive impact on our finances. Save for these things and you have just nailed one of life's big wins. Buckle up because I'm about to break down my perspective on weddings. One that lots of people think is weird. But I don't care if people think my techniques are weird. I care about designing our rich lives together. Of course your wedding will be simple. When my sister called me to tell me she'd gotten engaged, I was out with my friends. I ordered a round of champagne for everyone. When my other sister told me she was getting married a few months later, I ordered another round. Then I found out they were each having an East Coast wedding and a West Coast wedding, for a total of four Indian weddings in just a few months. Damn, this shit just got real. That's what got me started thinking about weddings. The average American wedding costs almost $35,000 which, as the Wall Street Journal notes, is well over half the median annual income in U.S. households. Hold on. Just wait a second before you start rolling your eyes. I know everybody wants to say, these people should just realize a wedding is only one day. It's not about putting yourself in crippling debt. Yeah, maybe. But guess what? When it's your wedding, you're going to want everything to be perfect. Yes, you. And guess what? So did I. It'll be your special day, so why wouldn't you spend the money to get the extra-long stemmed roses or the filet mignon? My point here is not to judge people for having expensive weddings. Quite the opposite. The very same people who spent $35,000 on their weddings are the ones who just a few years earlier said the same thing you're saying right now. I just want a small, simple wedding. It's ridiculous to go into debt for one day. and yet. Little by little, they spend more than they planned, and sometimes more than they can afford on their special day. There is nothing wrong with wanting your day to be perfect. Let's just acknowledge it and figure out how to plan for it. So what should you do? Knowing the astonishingly high costs of weddings, what can you do? I see three choices. First, cut costs and have a simpler wedding. Great idea. But frankly, most people are not disciplined enough to do this. I don't say this pejoratively, but statistically, most people will have a wedding that costs tens of thousands of dollars. Second, do nothing and figure it out later. This is the most common tactic. I spoke to a recently married person who spent the previous eight months planning her wedding, which ended up becoming a very expensive day. Now, months later, she and her husband don't know how to deal with the resulting debt. If you do this, you've made a huge mistake. But you're in good company because almost everybody else does this too. Third, acknowledge reality and plan for the wedding. Ask 10 people which of these choices they'll make and every single one of them will pick this one. Then ask them one more question. How much are you saving every month for your wedding? Doesn't matter if you're engaged or not. I guarantee the sputtering and silence will be worth it. Then again, I live for uncomfortable conversations. If you think about it, we actually have all the information we need. The average age at marriage is about 29 for men and 27 for women. By the way, I'm assuming a heterosexual marriage in this example because we have more long-term data. We know that the average cost of a wedding is about $35,000. So if you're really committed to not going into debt for your wedding, here's the astonishing amount you should be saving whether you're engaged or not. If you're a woman, at age 22, you should be saving over $583 a month. At age 25, you should be saving over $1,458 per month. If you're a man, at age 22, you should be saving $416. And at age 25, you should be saving over $729. Now, those numbers are staggering. Have you ever had anyone break down the cost of a wedding like that to you? Probably not. And I know it can be intimidating, but I think of this a little differently. It's an eye-opener. Remember that these numbers are based on averages. You may decide to get married earlier, later, or not at all. I got married at 36. The key point to take away here is that when you plan ahead, time is on your side. Now, most of us have never even conceived of saving this amount for our weddings. What do we say? We say things like, wow, that's a lot. There's no way I can save that. Maybe my parents will help. Or, my wedding won't be like that. I'm just going to keep it small and simple. How about, I'll think about it when I get engaged. Or, it would be weird to start saving for a wedding. I'm not even engaged yet. Or how about this one? I guess I have to marry someone rich. I've heard people say this, and... I think they were only half joking more commonly though we don't think about this at all one of the biggest expenditures of our lifetime which will almost certainly arrive in the next few years and we don't even sit down for 10 minutes to think about it something is broken here surprising wedding math i set up a simulation to see which levers were the most powerful in reducing wedding costs to be honest I thought reducing the number of guests would produce the biggest result. I was wrong. Interestingly, changing the number of guests doesn't change the cost as much as you'd imagine. In my simulation, for example, reducing the headcount by 50% only reduced the cost by 25%. Now, beyond the obvious, things like negotiating for better prices on venue and food, the best suggestion I've heard about cutting wedding costs is to tackle the fixed costs, One of my friends, for example, actually flew in a photographer from the Philippines for his wedding. It might sound extravagant, but even with the flight, he saved $4,000. In another example, my sister had her invitations designed and printed in India for a fraction of what it would have cost in the United States. Should you sign a prenup? One of my friends recently hosted a prenup night where he invited several high-net-worth individuals to discuss their thoughts on prenuptial agreements. Among the people he invited, men, women, single people, married people, and a lawyer to answer common questions, one person wrote back, firmly declining the invitation. He said, Dude, this is the last thing I'd ever come to. He was married, and he'd signed a prenup years earlier. My friend was a little confused, and he asked him why. This person said, Imagine taking the person you love, then introducing lawyers to communicate with each other for months, all to create a contract of what happens if you get divorced. That was the worst time of my life. Now, I didn't have as bad of an experience, but the financial conversations with Cass during the months that we were discussing our prenup were the hardest that I've ever had. In fact, before getting into a serious relationship, I never thought I would have a prenup. I didn't know anyone who had one, I didn't think it applied to me, and frankly, I didn't like the idea of planning to fail. But I changed my mind. My wife and I did sign a prenup, and after months of researching it, hours of discussion, and tens of thousands of dollars of legal fees, I want to tell you what I learned. By the way, my wife encouraged me to talk about this, because as we were going through the process, we discovered nobody talks about this publicly. My goal here is to shine a light on what I learned and the steps behind deciding whether to sign a prenup or not. Now, the first thing I wondered is who needs a prenup? If you think about pop culture, it's celebrities, industrial tycoons, and wealthy heirs. (laughs) Those are three groups that I am not a member of. As I researched further, I found that most people don't need a prenup unless one of you has a disproportionate amount of assets or liabilities or there are complications like one of you owning a business or having an inheritance 99 percent of people don't need one I learned that in movies and pop culture prenups are portrayed as a tool that the wealthier person uses to screw the other person in reality a prenup is just an agreement it's an agreement on assets that were accumulated before the marriage not what's jointly accumulated during the marriage plus an agreement on what to do if the marriage ends. Now, I own a business, so technically it should be a no-brainer. Get a prenup. But the decision went deeper than numbers. It went to identity. Am I the kind of person who should get a prenup? I remember calling my dad and asking him if Indian people ever got prenups. I was 100% sure he'd be against it, since we had never talked about prenups. Not ever. And my dad is pretty relaxed about money. Imagine my shock when he said, no, I don't think so, but I can see why people do it. (laughs) My mind was blown. In retrospect, I think I was looking for my dad to validate my doubts by saying, no way, we don't do that. When he didn't, I was shocked. As I started talking to more friends and told them that Cass and I were getting serious, a surprising number of them said, you're getting a prenup, right? Especially the entrepreneurs. I started to pay attention. The next thing I realized was that the best information about prenups is not available publicly. For example, I tried searching for sample agreements, and I found virtually nothing. Most of the information online about prenups is written by anonymous redditors, or at worst, it's factually wrong. I later figured out why. By definition, prenups are high-stakes, customized legal agreements. So therefore, there's no incentive to publicize how they actually work. So you need to take what you read online with a big grain of salt. I realized that in most other parts of life, we plan ahead. We plan our investments. We plan a down payment to buy a house. We plan where we want to live and how to get a raise at work. But somehow, magically, when it comes to our relationships, we're told that planning ahead is unromantic. As one divorce friend admitted to me, I never thought I'd have to use this agreement, but I'm glad I signed it. Finally, after researching it for months, and because I was bringing a business to the marriage and a much higher net worth, I made the decision that I wanted to sign one. Marriage is about finding a partner you love, one who you want to spend the rest of your life with. It's also a legal contract with significant financial ramifications. And I thought about my own life, I plan for many other financial contingencies. So it made sense that I should plan for this one, even if it involved an uncomfortable conversation. I started getting educated. I started consulting lots of experts. And I realized, of course, I should plan for the largest financial decision I'd ever make. As one friend told me, we signed our prenup at our best to prepare for the worst. How do you talk about this? This was a massive question on my mind. It almost made me more nervous to have the initial conversation than to even think about the agreement itself. Now most of the information online is about how to bring up the issue with your significant other. And I gotta tell you, I hate the way that this advice is portrayed. It's almost always from the perspective of how should a guy bring this up without making his female partner angry? I don't like this. It's reductionist, it's heteronormative, It assumes that one person is trying to get one over on the other person. Some common advice even recommends blaming your lawyers. They made me do it. I hated this approach. Here's what I did instead. Cass and I jointly decided to have a conversation about our future, about kids, marriage, money, all of it. In that conversation, I brought it up. I said, there's something else I want to talk about, and it's important to me. It's important to me that we talk about a prenup and sign one before we get married. Cass sat back. She clearly wasn't expecting this. And she said, wow, I'm just absorbing this. I wasn't expecting it, but I'm open to learning more about it. We talked more, and I told her why I wanted us to sign a prenup. I reassured her that I planned for our marriage to be forever. I said, I love you, and I'm excited to get married and be with you for the rest of my life. I told her why we were even talking about this. Because of a few decisions and a lot of luck with my business, I'm coming to this relationship with more assets than most people. I don't think we'll ever need to use a prenup, but it's important to me that I protect the assets I accumulated before we got married. I emphasized that marriage was about creating a team. And I told her, when we get married, we are a team. I want you to know that I'll look out for you, And I know you'll look out for me. I emphasized our lifestyle. And this was really important. I reminded her that both of us grew up in very similar ways, similar values. Both of our moms are teachers. And I told her, you see what I spend my money on. It's not sports cars or bottle service. It's basically living a comfortable life with a few nice things. And I told her, I love sharing this lifestyle with you and with our families but I was firm about wanting to sign a prenup. I told her, I'm proud of what I've accomplished with my business, and I'm proud of what I've accomplished with my finances. It's important to me that I protect those assets in the worst and unlikely case that we separate. Now, I just want to point out to you some of the things that I said in that conversation. Notice that I started by emphasizing that I love her, and I want to spend my life with her. Notice also that I took responsibility for bringing it up. I hated that advice of blaming it on lawyers and families. No, this is me. This is my decision. I want to have this conversation and engage with you, and I want to be honest as we are planning to get married. And finally, notice that I spent the majority of the time talking about why I wanted a prenup. We didn't get into structures or numbers. It was all about setting the foundation for the conversations that I knew we were going to have. Now, as I said, Cass told me she was open to it. She wanted to learn a little bit more. And thus began a multiple-month conversation about our prenup. We talked about what money meant to us. We circled back to why I wanted one. And when we dug into the actual numbers, we talked about what those numbers meant to each of us. At one point, Cass said to me, you know, I've been really open with you about my finances, but I feel a little uncomfortable Because I don't really know anything about yours. I sat back and I realized, oh my God, I had violated my own advice. My own advice is you should talk to your partner about money. You should bring your numbers together. You should open up the books and talk about what it means to you. Well, guess what? Cass had done that to me. She'd shown me all of her pay stubs and asked me for advice on setting up her 401k. But I had never done the same to her. So, of course, she felt at a disadvantage. Of course, she felt like she had opened herself up to me, but I had not done the same to her. In fact, only my bookkeeper and accountant knew everything. And that was a huge mistake on my part. That day, I opened up my books, and we talked about my finances. We talked about what the money meant to us. How about travel? What if I wanted to stay at a nicer hotel? What if she wanted to save money? We talked about our businesses. Mine has been around for over a decade. Hers was just starting up. What if she didn't hit her numbers for a month? Or what if that happened for three months in a row? What if my income decreased? We talked about risk and security. Think about it. How does money make you feel? Do you need a certain amount in your bank account to feel safe? Are you risk averse? I'm willing to bet that your partner thinks about risk and security differently than you do. Cass did and so did I. Find out with your partner. In retrospect, I really should have started this conversation six months before I proposed. I should have shared those finances with Cass earlier, and I should have spent time talking about what those numbers meant to both of us. For me, money represents hard work and luck. It also represents the opportunity to design our rich life together. Now, if I look back on the last 20 years, I've been thinking about money essentially every single day. It's part of my business. It's part of my personal finances. It's something that is ever-present for me. Cass had not. I'm now more casual about certain expenses, knowing that my financial team will handle it and make sure that money is transferred from one place to another. Cass was more meticulous about tracking every last cent. I should have taken the time to gradually discuss different money issues and make it a regular thing. Not just tell her some of my financial decisions, but also ask her more about her own. For example, hey Cass, I'm calling my bookkeeper to prepay my taxes. Here's why I do this. What do you think? How do you do it? Or how do you decide what to spend money on? How do you decide what's not worth it? Here's how I think about it. We should have had those discussions earlier. That way it wouldn't have been a surprise that this money topic was sprung on her. It would have been something that we were regularly discussing. Now as the months went on, things got really tough. I started feeling resentful. She felt misunderstood. And we both felt stuck. This is when Cass brought up the idea of getting help. She said, we are getting nowhere. We need to have someone else come in and help mediate this. The minute she suggested it, I knew she was right. So if you're wondering how you find a counselor, what we did was we literally went on Yelp and typed in therapist. (laughs) We found one that was close by to our apartment. We walked over there and we had the first of about three or four meetings. This counselor helped us navigate the tricky emotional issues of money. Imagine getting new conversational tools to talk about money, to talk about your hopes, your fears, your dreams, your pride, And ultimately, what your marriage will be about. This was immensely useful. And I have to say, we should have done it earlier. I've heard there are counselors who specialize in financial counseling. But as I mentioned, we went to the first one we found. She was terrific. In retrospect, I also should have talked about how to manage our lawyers. This was another aspect that nobody talks about. Your lawyer naturally wants to protect you from every contingency while your partner's lawyer wants to protect them. That's normal. That's their job. But ultimately, you need to manage them, not let the lawyers lead the process. When it comes down to discussing the substance of the prenup, the actual agreement itself, these are complex topics. Prenups dictate the terms of what happens in the case of divorce. So what happens to your premarital assets? Those are the assets you've accumulated before you get married. What if you've bought a house together? Who moves out? How fast? What if you get divorced in six months or 20 years? And what if you have kids? As you can see, this gets complicated. And there are prenups, postnup post-nup amendments, and so much more. There are no easy formulas, which is why you need the help of lawyers. Ultimately, Cass and I signed an agreement that we're both satisfied with. Going through the process, I got to tell you, I was shocked at how nobody talks about this publicly. It's all behind closed doors. And that's why I wanted to record this for you. I wanna shine a light on these difficult taboo topics when it comes to money. Whether or not you ever decide to sign a prenup, I want you to know that there are other people who have gone through these tough, challenging topics. And if you need help, there are people out there to guide you. As I reflect back on this prenup process, It taught me more about money with my partner than anything else I've ever done. And Cass agreed it did the same for her. And even though we both hope we never have to use it, we are thankful that we went through the process. Work and money. Fundamentally, there are two ways to get more money. You can earn more or you can spend less. Now, cutting costs is great, but I personally find increasing earnings to be a lot more fun. Because most of our income comes from work, this is an excellent place to optimize to earn more. In fact, negotiating your salary at a new job is the fastest legal way to make money. Your starting salary is even more important than you think because it sets the bar for future raises. And in all likelihood, your starting salary at future jobs. In other words, a $1,000 or $2,000 salary increase can equal many times that over your career. So let me show you how to earn thousands of dollars by negotiating for a better salary.